Josiah up here too. That's always it's always fun when you get Josiah's up here. By the way, when you start off with a joke, you got me. Like I'm hooked. You start off with a joke, hundred percent. Got my approval. I can't believe you guys don't like puns as much as I do. Puns are great. Um, well, this morning we're going to continue our study here in the book of Colossians, and uh, we're, we're just going to kind of get a running start and get get moving right into it. Uh, last week we went through a couple different things, and just we're going to spend the next one or two minutes just kind of giving a brief recap in case you weren't here uh, last week. But we looked at verses 1 through 3 primarily, and Paul was laying out his heart and his affection and his desire for the people in Colossae and the people in Laodicea and the people in Heropolis, and laying out his, his heartfelt desire for these people. And he desired for them that their hearts would be comforted, or be strengthened. We kind of, uh, if you remember, we did a little contrast of the heart where in our culture we understand the heart as simply emotion and feeling and how it is that we're going to just feel. Um, but then we, uh, we did is we looked a little bit and understood that the Hebrew didn't have any understanding of, of the abstract, that the Hebrew didn't understand, they didn't correlate our feelings to the heart, where we would say, my heart feels heavy, or I'm anxious, and I'm, I'm weighty. They didn't understand it that way. They didn't have a way to describe it. The way that they would do that, and again, anytime you can get into jokes, we talked about bowels, right? They understood this, and they portrayed it talking about the content of the bowels, where Jeremiah is looking out over his city that's being destroyed, and he looks out to them, and he sees them, and his eyes are, are teary. His eyes are, uh, he's beginning to cry. He's pouring out his heart over them, and his bowels were troubled because inside, his insides were being torn apart, and that's what it felt like. So it was described as bowels, and we looked at the heart and said that this is the understanding of the intellect, the will, the, the core, the whole of the person in general. So as we move forward with the understanding of the heart being of the mind and of the will of a person. And so he's laying out and he's praying for them and showing his desire that their hearts would be comforted, that they would be knit together in love. And at the close of verse 2 and 3, talking about acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So now let's look at our text. We're going to be starting here in verse 4 and getting through to verse 10. Starting reading in verse 4, it says, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of this world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Let's pray. Father God, this morning we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have this incredible privilege and this gift of time to come and to study your word and to, uh, even in these few verses, to be able to acknowledge you and to be able to, to look at your son and see the truth of, of the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in him bodily. We thank you for the truth of your word that it, that it comes to us. And as we 
as we look and we heed this warning, we see this warning that Paul gave to the Colossians, that it'd be a warning that, that we too would be aware of, that it would be something that's ever on our mind and that we would, be, uh, we would remain firm and, and grounded and rooted in the truth, not just what we believe to be true, but what we know to be true, which is you and all your promises and your word. Father, we thank you for that this morning, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look briefly here in verses 4 and 5. And again, we're going to kind of link into uh, verse 3 as well. But Paul has, has laid out a lot, of, he's laid out some doctrine going on here. He's laying it out and he continues to do so in these coming verses. And he's also going to be giving a warning. If you didn't notice, there's, there's two different times that he's basically offering this, beware of this. And this I say, and he's giving warnings in verses 4 and verse 8, and those are going to go together well. But he's giving a warning about this false teaching. Again, Paul was very concerned that the teaching that they would be receiving would be accurate. Now again, stop for a second. This only seems to make sense, right? It, wouldn't you desire that what you are taught would be accurate? Would you not desire that what your children would be taught would be accurate and true? No, no one is really out here saying, hey, I really want my kids, my family, or myself to be learning things that aren't true at all. That, that, that's ridiculous. No one would ever assert that that is what they want for themselves or for their families. But he's going to lay into this, and he's going to be giving a warning. And again, keeping it all within the context as he continues this flow of thought. But he's linking back to verse 3, talking about the truth of the deity and sufficiency of Christ. Because remember, we've discussed how incredibly important that is. And at the heart of this epistle is, Christ is God, and Christ is sufficient alone for salvation. Don't take away from it. Don't add to it. Leave it alone. Christ alone, leave it alone. And so he's linking back up into here, and he says that in Christ himself, the hidden God was revealed to mankind. Now, just stop again and just think about this mystery of God that's being revealed through the person of Christ. In him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Who, who are these treasures hidden to? Is it to all mankind? Because at the moment of salvation, at the time of salvation, all the treasures of knowledge, wisdom, when we receive Christ, you receive all of this. This is as if you're, you're looking and trying to enter into this, this gold mine or a mine filled with diamonds. And it's as if at salvation, the, the entire mine, the gateway to it is blown up. And all we get to do is simply pick up the diamonds, picking up the gold, receiving the treasures that God gives us through Christ. And have you stopped to think about the treasures that, that God has given to you, that, that Christ has given because of the wisdom and the knowledge that you receive? And again, it's not we're going to see compared to philosophy. This isn't a, a higher knowledge, a knowledge that no one could ever have obtained. It's simply a truth and the knowledge of who Christ is. Just for a second, listen to what uh, Paul writes to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he says, "...and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness." God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. This is a verse that some of us are familiar with, and this is one that they likely would have had and they traditionally had held as a hymn. It's a great song talking about all of the truth of this mystery of Christ, of the mystery of godliness. And again, look at these different points. We have one, God was manifest in the flesh. He was justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. 
They, they would have encapsulated this into a hymn as a song to remember the truth of who God is and who Christ is. And in verse 3, this word hid is from the word apocryphos, where we get the word apocrypha, talking about things that are hidden. Again, if you remember that this Colossian heresy was that there was this, this secret knowledge that only the specific elites would have. They would say, yes, you have, you have scripture, that's not enough. You have Christ, that's not enough. Now, red flags should be popping up in everyone's mind the moment that a person says, Christ alone is not enough for salvation. You need more. And only I know what that is. Right? I mean, even initially, some of you guys are kind of smirking at the sound of that when a, to hear a person say, Christ isn't going to be enough. You need a whole lot more than that. And I'm going to have to tell you what it is. And, and it, it, the list is always the same. But again, it's contradicting these heretics that were referring to writings containing their spiritual knowledge. This was secret. This was hidden. That was more than what the Word of God would be, more than what Christ has said. They claimed to have had secret knowledge. And so he's going to continue, and in verse 4, heed this warning, and this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. And then he gets into verse 5, Though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the Spirit, joining and beholding your order, and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Again, where was Paul at the time that he was writing this? He was in chains. He's imprisoned. He was not able to go and to be with them. We remember a few verses back, these are people that he had never, ever met before, and he was never going to meet. But yet he loved them, and he's writing to them and giving them this strong warning because of his love for them. The word for order here in the Greek is taxis. It's a military term referring to rank. He's saying, you are still holding your rank. You are still holding your rank, and he's commending them, he's encouraging them, and steadfastness, this steroma, this is solidarity, it's support, it's foundation. Again, military terms. He's talking about they're, they're being united together. Do you remember a couple verses ago? Being knit together in love. How well is knitting going to be if, if it's not actually holding together? It's not going to last very long. And so he's commending these people and he's writing to them, Though I'm absent with you in the Spirit, joying in beholding your rank and your steadfastness, of your faith in Christ. You have, sol- you have solidarity with one another. You are supporting one another. There is a firm foundation, and all of it linking back to Christ. If you're familiar um, with, with the Spartans back in the time of old, thinking military terms, and you look at the Spartans, and their strength wasn't just an individual skill, though they were incredible warriors, um, incredibly skilled. From the time that you're a child, you're trained to be a warrior, which today doesn't really make too much sense. We don't really train three, four, five-year-olds to, to fight with a sword and how to carry a shield. If you do that in your own home, that's impressive, um, but I don't think too many of you have done so. But if, you, if you're familiar with the history of it, the way that they would fight wasn't so much just one-on-one in combat. Where was their strength? It was in being together and protecting the person next to you and, and being formed in such a way that their order and the rank would be protecting the person on either side, that they were better off in a group where their strength wasn't just in the numbers, but in their solidarity and in their support. And then he continues here in verse 6, As ye therefore receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, astounding therein, or bounding therein, 
with thanksgiving. Quite simply, as you have received Christ, walk in Him. Do not waver. How often do we tend to, to, want to, be, to be enticed by wanting to waver and to walk away? Well, yes, you, you've received Christ, so continue to walk in Him in this way. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, the big thing was the question and the bracelets and everything like this, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, whenever it was, but the what would Jesus do uh, slogans, the bra- everything about it, right? What would Jesus do? And initially it started off, and it was like, hey, that's a really good idea. If every time you're going into a situation, you can simply ask, okay, what would Jesus do? And you kind of know what the answer is, and you're following that as the example, that's going to go well. Would you guys agree with that? If you're following the example of Jesus, that's going to go well for you? Yes, absolutely. Okay, I'm giving easy questions this morning. Okay, I'm giving you answers to the test already. What would Jesus do? And it was great. It was like, hey, that's an awesome thing. That's a good way for me to live, to always ask myself, to keep that in line with the example. What would he do? But as with any fad that goes on, especially in America, quickly that became kind of more of a a joke, and it was said mockingly of, well, I want to control this person. I want to manipulate their behavior, or I just... It's something we're too familiar with. So then it was like, hey, what would Jesus do? You know, you want the last cookie in your house. And so you say to your brother, what would Jesus do? Would Jesus take the cookie or would he give it to someone else? Right? All the time. This is, it was incredibly misused because it was, well, what would Jesus do? Wasn't so much what would he actually do trying to motivate a person to live in a life of godliness, but simply a way to get what they wanted. And some of us may have even been guilty of it. I know I certainly was. Well, what would Jesus do? Not ever asking myself, well, would he um, seek to manipulate people in this way? Or am I actually concerned about the behavior of another person? Or am I just trying to get the result that I want? But I, just, I think about this, and the idea is he's saying, as you've received Christ, so walk in him. Saying, you have received him. Continue to walk in him steadfast. We've talked a lot about continuing on and persevering through all the trials, enduring. Do not waver. Walk in union with him. Ask yourself, what would he do? Not in a joking way, but genuinely concerned with what would Jesus do? And so he's writing to these Christians and saying, Christians, you have been rooted in Christ and you continue to grow as you walk in him. You have already been rooted and built up in him, you will continue to be growing and build, built up in him as you continue on walking in him. And again, abounding therein with thanksgiving. That's something I could use a whole lot more of, is, is an attitude of thanksgiving and continuing to always be thankful for things. Good things come our way and it's easy to give thanks, isn't it? It's very easy to say, God, I am so thankful for what you gave me because it's something we immediately recognize, as opposed to simply... Look at all of us that are here today. The opportunity, again, that we had to be able to come together to be here. Just simply another day, another, uh, another day that we are able to have friendships and, and family and all that's even encompassed in this life. Each and every time that we get to receive it, it is a gift. It's not deserved. It is a gift. And, uh, and I love how, how familiar and how common the theme of thanksgiving is all throughout Scripture. And then we're going to get into verse 8, and we're going to spend more of the time here as it's linked in with verse 4. But he's going to continue and kind of uh, reassert this warning. Beware lest any man spoil you through, vol- through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, 
after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Beware. This is a strong warning. This isn't just, hey, if it's possible, try not to go near it. Hey, if you see it, maybe don't entertain it so much. This is a strong warning that he's laying out. Beware. Uh, When you see a sign walking around the neighborhood and you see a sign that says, beware of dog, do you trust it? Or do you take a chance with it? Do you hop the fence and want to see if it's actually true? I don't think many of you have done that. Beware of dog. And you see a picture of this big, mean-looking dog, and you go, you know what? I don't really think that's a big warning. I'm going to go see about that dog. Some people do, and they don't even have a dog on the property. I don't know. But this is a strong warning, and he's writing this. It's incredibly emphasized. Beware, lest any man spoil you. This spoil means to kidnap or plunder or carry off. Have you thought of it that way? Someone through the philosophy and trying to lead you astray that they would be kidnapping you away from the truth, that they would be spoiling you, plundering you, or carrying you off from the truth? Spoil, again, this is where, uh, you know, civilizations, you go in, you conquer, you go in, you plunder, you carry off the booty, you carry off the treasure, you carry off all that they had, you take all of their riches. That's what he's writing about here. He's warning them, beware lest any man spoil you or carry you off from the truth through what? Philosophy and vain deceit. Now, I could talk about philosophy all day. Okay, I, I absolutely could. There's a whole lot that's going to go on here. We're going to be brief with it. But philosophy, simply the word here, uh, means love of wisdom. It's two different words, phileo, love, and then uh, sophia, wisdom. So this is the love of wisdom. Philosophy is a love of wisdom. Now think about it. How many of you, you can raise your hands, we'll get audience participation here, um, have ever had philosophy class or really studied any kind of philosophy or anything? Okay. All right, so a decent amount. Okay, think about it. I really enjoyed it when I was in college. I love my philosophy class because I like to argue. Again, not a surprise to many of you. I love to argue about it. If there's not an argument there, I'm going to make one and engage in the conversation. Some of you are similar to me, and we have fun with that. But I absolutely loved it because it was, it was a way for me to think. And I was sitting here, and as I, we, we would study philosophy, and you learn about all the different uh, philosophers, and you hear their different arguments, and you're like, wow, this is some real high learning. This is real higher level of learning stuff. I feel like I'm really getting a whole bunch of knowledge, and I'm going to go home. And you know, after my first semester of college, going home and being able to, to tell your parents how much smarter you are because, hey, I was at college for six months, so I know a lot more now. Um, it was incredibly stupid. You know, you have one philosophy class, and you're like, hey, I know a lot. I don't know if you guys know this. Um, Incredible. You get incredibly arrogant and especially more ignorant. And everyone else knows how ignorant you are except for yourself. Okay, that's just a personal testimony. It may not have been the same for you. But philosophy, the love of wisdom, and it spends all this time trying to craft different arguments and ways to understand. And think about the different philosophies that we have now. And think back, if you've studied it at all, um, think about what it is that you've heard. There are so many different things. But he is saying here, beware lest any man spoil you through this philosophy. And there's no coincidence it's linked with vain deceit. Some uh, philosophers that we're familiar with is uh, Frederick Nietzsche, right? Incredibly intelligent person. The world loves him, actually absolutely looks up to him and says, man, this is one of the great philosophers of, of recent memory. And his most famous thing is the one who is saying that God is dead, right? 
that God is dead, and he died basically of pity. So this is where philosophy leads you to a point to say that God is dead. Not just that, if that wasn't enough, Jean-Paul Sartre, he's a French philosopher, said, quote, Every existing thing is born without reason and goes on living out of weakness and dies by accident. Just think about that. Everything is born without reason, goes on living out of weakness, and dies by accident. There's no coincidence that an incredible amount of philosophers are atheists or humanists. Why? Because it's completely void of where actual true wisdom and true knowledge is. In this love for wisdom, they have completely separated God totally from it. And if God is the only one who holds wisdom, and you're, you're seeking wisdom and avoiding Him, what road is that going to lead you to? It's foolishness. It's going to drive you mad. The last 11 years of Nietzsche's life, he was driven insane. Why? He was pursuing this knowledge, and he was so wise and intelligent, so why is it that that would drive him mad? It's because he never found it. He's going down this road that was never going to lead him there. Paul is describing this philosophy as empty deception. This is what he's saying here. It's vain deceit. Again, vain. It's done in vain. It's all about yourself. And again, we can think about the different philosophies that we have now. The humanist mindset that says you have the power in and of yourself to do whatever it is that you want. You are your own God. You are in control. Blah, blah, blah. And it continues on. It puts all the, the power in the world on yourself. But what's incredible is that it leads you all the time to this conclusion, and this is where atheists end up, this is where humanists end up, with the same conclusion that Sartre came to, everything existing is born without reason. There is no hope in where this philosophy leads you in this thinking. Seeking to attain this high level of knowledge, it leads you down a road of madness and coming to a conclusion, well then there's no meaning. Because if there is no God, then there can't be any meaning. If this is all that we have, what meaning is there? And so he's telling them, he's encouraging the people as this is creeping in, people trying to add to it, beware lest any man spoil you or carry you off from the truth through these things, through philosophy, through vain deceit. Philosophy now, it goes back, and, and this is what I was learning in school and some of you earlier on too, and it's going to continue on. Well, where do we come from? Where, what's our purpose? Well, we evolved from monkeys. We evolved from this. We were created by this and all these different things, right? Well, what, what hope is that? There's none. It's empty, empty deception. Because that's what it is. If, it, if it's an intentional avoidance of the truth and it's a lie, it's deception. And this word where we get beguile you and, and vain deceit, all of it is carrying the same idea of a fish hook. This is the original meaning, the understanding of it. It is of a fish hook. Now think about it. Some of you, fish. I tried and failed in my early years. I don't have the patience. Some of you guys do. Right, but it carries the idea of a fish hook. Now think about it. Why would that make sense? Why, why would a fish hook relate with deception? Do you think that's what the fish was expecting? The fish is over here looking at the bait going, oh, that's what I want. And ultimately, what did they get? Get a hook in the mouth, right? Where's philosophy going to get you? It's empty deception. Don't let anyone beguile you, anyone carry you off from the truth. Don't let anybody trick you with this because in the end, what you think is going to be true and fruitful and positive for yourself, it's a fish hook. You're going to get hurt and likely you're going to die like that. It's an incredibly depressing conclusion. And so he's warning them out of his love for them, not because he just likes to argue 
like I can do sometimes. But he's writing out of his love for them, inspiration of the Spirit, writing to this church saying, Beware lest any man would spoil you through these things. Beware lest any man would try to trick you, to entice you with something over on this side, while on the other hand giving you a fish hook in the mouth so that they can control you and hurt you and harm you. Beware of these things. And again, beware is not just, well, if you come across it, just entertain it for a bit, just don't commit. It is to get your butt away from it. It is a strong meaning that he's emphasizing here. And then he continues to show the source of these things. And again, these are the two sources in all occasions. Beware of these things that man may spoil you through philosophy and a vain deceit. After what? The tradition of men. That's number one. And number two, the rudiments of the world. So he's offering the contrast. The source of these things leading you away from the truth, traditions of man, and the rudiments of the world. Tradition. We all know what traditions are. It's things that get passed down from one to another. Many of you have different traditions for all sorts of things. Uh, churches have traditions. Schools have traditions. Families have traditions. My family, I really, we didn't really have many traditions within my initial family. Um, and then I got married, and I joined a family with a whole bunch of traditions. And even though they're the same every year, I constantly forget what they are. Right? Yeah, I'm really bad at it. Like, incredibly bad. But there's all sorts of traditions. I mean, the craziest one is a birthday week. How many of you guys do birthday weeks? Yeah, it's a, it's a scam. Yeah, see, Richard too? Look, at, You guys can be best friends. But see, it, it's a scam, right? No, a birthday is a birthday one day. I, I can't get you a present every day of the week now. It's hard. It's hard to do. All sorts of traditions that go on. And again, there's nothing inherently bad about traditions where something would be passed down. There's nothing inherently good about traditions where things are being passed down. So the question is, what is it that we're passing down? In any situation, traditions can be good if you're passing down something that is good, correct? It's purely logical. It makes a whole lot of sense. Traditions can also be very, very bad if you're passing down things that are bad. Tradition is something that a lot of us hold on to because it has significant meaning for us. And he's writing to us saying these things that are going to be passed down, this philosophy, this deceit that's passed down after the tradition of men. This is completely contradictory to biblical traditions and passing down things of the Bible. This is tradition that's passed down, much like these philosophers that would be passing down to their children, to everyone else and saying, hey, there is no meaning in life. You were just born as an accident. You have no hope. There's no point in doing anything. Or traditions that are passed down that would simply say, hey, in our family or in our church, we have a tradition that says that Jesus is not God. Okay, for those of us we like traditions, is that one that we would ever want to be a part of or promote? Absolutely not. Now, a tradition that trains up children and traditions in the home where you're spending time reading the Bible, praying together, knowing who God is, and a tradition where you're talking about Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as God, that's absolutely a great tradition. So what is it that we're supposed to be passing down? He's making it very clear. These philosophies, these, this deceit, these fish hooks that are going to be passed down is from the traditions of men. And what you notice, again, keeping understanding of philosophy, most philosophers build off the work of the previous ones, right? 
No, no one's really coming up with any new ideas. They're just saying it in a different order. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, he, he explained this as one man would draw a circle, and another philosopher would come by a generation after, X out the circle, and draw it again. Well, he didn't do anything. He just made a different circle. Right? So every, every philosophy you can link back basically to Plato, to Aristotle and all of this. So the idea that there's this incredible high level of thought within philosophy, one, it's foolishness apart from, from, from wisdom of God. We know this. But it all is just drawing and bringing it back off the other people. I mean, this is basically plagiarism in like its greatest form. No, no one's really saying anything different. They're just slightly tweaking it to give themselves credit. And we see this in all walks of life, but it's fascinating. And it was good for understanding of, you know, of, of that Schaefer puts it, one would draw a circle, one would cross it out, the next person draws a circle, next one would cross it out and draw a different circle, or maybe it's a different size, and just the complete lunacy that takes place so much of this. <coughs> Listen to what this, this interaction. In Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees are talking to Jesus, and again, I always am fascinated at the situations where the Pharisees are seen rebuking Jesus, right? Because they don't really understand who he is, but they still have the, the gall and the, and the pride and, and all of this in them to rebuke what Jesus is doing or saying. But in Mark chapter 7, verses 5 through 9, we see an interaction. It says, Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said unto them, Well, hath the Sias prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You see what's going on here? They're asking him, Hey, why aren't you doing it like the way that we've done it and the way that the elders have always done it? You're not supposed to do that. You don't, you don't know what you're doing. And he's like, Well, it says, Prophesied of you hypocrites, saying it is written, The people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. So even here we see Jesus rebuking the 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 Pharisees and saying, look, you're rejecting the commandments of God, the traditions, these things that God has passed down, the commandments that he has given to his people, and instead replacing it with a tradition of men. Man, this is so incredibly easy to do, isn't it? To, to forget, and because of preferences and different things that may come up, to replace what it is that God has commanded with something that we have just simply, well, it's always been this way, and I just don't know any, I don't know any different. And things quickly get replaced. And this is why it's so important. Um, and especially as, as a parent and having three kids now, the incredible impact and importance it is that we actually do a good job in raising and training our kids. To know what is the Bible commanding as opposed to just, well, I want it this way, so I'm going to tell my kids it has to be this way. I think about, you know, I, my kids do a really decent job of obeying. They're naturally that way. And I'm incredibly thankful for that. But I think about it in a day, how many times if you're, you know, you're, you're correcting your kid or you're telling them not to do something. And, you know, a lot of times I just stop and go, okay, are they actually doing something wrong? Or am I just annoyed by it? 
Have you guys ever thought that with your kids or anybody else? Like, are they actually really doing something that's wrong, or am I just like, I just, I'm irritated, or I'm annoyed with it, and I just would prefer that they didn't do that? You know, and a lot of times I go, man, maybe 90% of the time I'm telling my kids to stop doing something, they're not doing anything wrong. I just didn't want them to do it. And so that's where I look at this and I go, okay, so what is it that we're passing down? And, and as he's, he's linking this back into the church and talking about all of this, saying, hey, beware, lest people will try to spoil you through these things. It's vain deceit. It's a fish hook. You think you're getting one thing and you're going to get something completely different. And so that's the traditions of men. And then rudiments of the world. This is the elementary principles of the world. This literally means one in a row. So this is akin to the ABCs. The elementary things, the first things you learn, the ABCs. It it claims to have this high knowledge and be so exceptional in all of these things, but at the end, it's elementary, it's basic, it's simple, it's not even anything. He's speaking of the basics of human religion. Think about all the man-made religions. We can go through the list. I don't have time to catalog them all, but think about what is the primary foundation of all of them. That there's redemption or salvation through works, And if that's not good enough, if you want more, then you can be saved through paying me a couple hundred dollars every month. But man-made religion says you have to earn it, you have to work, you have to do all of these different things to receive it. Why? Because then you can have the control, you can have the power, you can manipulate, you can control people that way. And as Paul continues to write in all of this, again, just keep it in the understanding of the context as a whole. Beware. Don't let anybody take you away from the truth. Don't let anybody tell you you need more than Christ. Christ, he's already built a case. He's preeminent. He's sufficient. He is everything. He is all that's needed for salvation. Stop trying to add to it. Don't let anyone take you away from it and give you something else. You don't need Christ plus the Book of Mormon. You don't need Christ plus the Quran. You don't need Christ plus fill in the blank. You don't need it. Christ alone is enough. Leave it alone. And then he once again brings in, here in the closing verses of our text, he brings back in the truth. And verses 9 and 10, we'll we'll touch on more next week. But he makes it clear, beware of these things that try to lead you away from Christ, that lead you not after Christ. And talking about Christ, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That might be the strongest verse for the deity of Christ in all of Scripture. And you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Does that encourage you? You are complete in him. Stop trying to add to these other things. You are totally and fully complete in Christ, because in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He wasn't just a man. He was truly a man, yes, but also truly God the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in him bodily. And so here as we see this, this is a warning that Paul is giving to these churches, to this group of churches in the Lycus Valley, and as he's writing to them, concerned about what it is that may befall them, he is telling them, beware, do not let anyone come along and spoil you with their philosophy, claiming to have a secret knowledge that isn't revealed through Christ the one in whom all the mysteries of knowledge and wisdom are hid, the one in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells, the one in whom our redemption was purchased by his blood. That is what you need. Anything else, it's after the traditions of men. And I can tell you, and many of you are also aware, there is a lot of traditions of men being taught, whether it's in churches, 
uh, whether it's in books, a whole bunch of it. It's starting to become a majority, and there's, there's so many things, and again, we see the effects of this in the way that it plays out in the lives of people. This isn't just something that, well, it's a little misguided, but it's not actually going to have an effect. It has an incredible effect. What is being taught? It has to be true. If we're teaching things that are inaccurate, if we're teaching things that aren't based on biblical knowledge and what it is that God has revealed and, and informed us to be true, it's going to lead down a road that's going to lead to one madness, two, everything that we see. But again, apart from God, what is there? There's foolishness and there's sin. There's no, there's no redemption in that. There's no wisdom in that. There's no knowledge in that. We look at the, at the world now, and again, last week was, we mentioned about how over in, in the UK of a state being able to decide whether or not a child would live or die. The state said, I get to make that choice. Because it's too expensive, we don't want to care for that child, we're going to let the baby die. The state got to make that decision. In California, there's the bill that's been going through where it's going to make it illegal for a person to give any Christian or biblical counsel to someone who's, who is struggling and seeking biblical Christian counsel for same-sex attraction or gender identity, anything like that. It's going to be illegal for you to, to actually counsel them biblically. Illegal to do that. Not just, hey, you have to have a lot of permission. It will be illegal to do that. So, think about it. This isn't just something where it's saying, hey, it's not really going to have an effect, so just try not to embrace it too much. This is going to matter. Beware. There are going to, this is the fish hook, right? There is no meaning in life, so we get to set what we think is moral and good and true. Now you're seeing it played out in different laws that are going to be passed. We're going to see the effects of these things. Kids, people my age even, are being, have been, all we know from growing up and in public schools and different things is, hey, evolution or, you know, the fish to philosopher. You grew up in a way without meaning. You were, you were basically just this cell that grew up and look at you now. Right? There's, there's no purpose to anything. So it's important what it is that's being taught. And he's writing to these people out of his love and his concern for them, reminding them not only to be aware but encouraging them with the truth of their position in Christ, that you are rooted and built up in him. You are established in your faith. And because of that, abound there with thanksgiving. Be thankful that you are rooted and grounded. Be thankful for these things. And he continues verse after verse after verse to remind the people of who it is that they are grounded in. And all of it is the all-sufficient Savior of Jesus Christ. The one who has made us, as verse 10 says, we are complete. We are complete in him. Complete. What does complete mean? Complete, right? You're, you're lacking in nothing. Again, I'm giving you guys very simple questions, right? Complete is complete. You lack for nothing. You are whole in Christ. Beware of these things, and for each and every one of us, beware of what it is that we consume. Beware of what it is that is taught. Beware of the way that we, we, we come before the Word of God. Beware that it's not someone that's giving us the fish hook of saying, hey, I know the Bible talks a lot about Christ being sufficient to save, but you need a little bit more. Run from it. Run away from it. Be firmly rooted, like, like the, the trees that are planted by streams of water. Be firmly rooted, continuing to grow and being built up in him. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, you are, you are so good to us in that you've, revealed yourself through your word, that you continue to, to sanctify us in your truth, that we, we come before your word and we grow and we, 
we feast on it, and we, we seek to understand it. And God, I pray that for each and every one of us here, that in, our, in any attempt for wisdom and knowledge, that we would simply flee to our, to our Bibles, to, to prayer, and to seeking after you, knowing that there is no wisdom, there is no knowledge apart from you. God, in our, in our attempts to in our attempts to seek to know more than, than another person or to, to amass so much in this life. There's so many who have, who have been led astray and been, been deceived. Father, we thank you that we have been firmly rooted in you and as we continue to, to grow in a, in a study and a love and an affection for you and for your word that we will continue to be built up, that we wouldn't be carried away or, or plundered away from the truth to anything. And God, it's, it's our prayer that for each and every one of us here and, and in churches all over the valley and all over the state and all over the country and continuing onward that, that Christians would be firmly rooted in what is true, that it wouldn't be tossing to and fro that, that Christians would stand boldly and stand firmly on what we know to be true as, as the ones who, who hold what, what true wisdom and true knowledge is and that, that the traditions that are passed on are ones that are, that are biblical traditions and not things that, that we've sought to create ourselves, but that they're ones that are true. And it talks about who you are and the songs that are, that are passed down, that it would encapsulate the truth of who you are and who your son is and all that you've done for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for continuing to build us up in you. Pray that as we continue today and continue on with our week, that we would truly see you in all of your majesty and all your glory the way that you deserve to be seen. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This, as we've been kind of studying here in, in Colossians, there's been a lot kind of going on, and hopefully we're able to see kind of the, the order of things being uh, uh, placed in together and just keeping it all again kind of within the context of it all. And I, I love just seeing Paul's heart not only to to affirm what is true, but to make clear that we know those things that are not. Because again, our, our culture and our world is so filled with misinformation and things that try to persuade you not to see Christ for who he truly is. Um, and we see this played out. And again, I've shared with you the conversations within youth group and these different effects that this is going to have and different things like that. And um, being correct and being firmly rooted in what it is that is true is going to be incredibly important as we continue on. Firm. Now, now, again,